Hey, Cracked fans. If you're a listener of this podcast, I imagine you feel fairly similar to how I do about the latest clothing options made available across the tennis market. Now, while I won't call out any brand in particular, I will say this. Given the exorbitant nature of the latest designs, feels like you better be pretty freaking good at tennis if you want to wear that sort of clothing on the court. Now, thankfully, we here at Crack Rackets are now able to provide a far more suitable, far more comfortable, and I'm going to be honest, far more stylish option for all of our Crack Rackets fans, courtesy of our friends over at Lucky Racket. Lucky Racket uses some of the best fitting and feeling tees in the world. Their shirts are combed, ring-spun, heirloom cotton, and tri-blend Bella and Canvas. I don't even know what that means, but that sounds spectacular. So, how can you get yourself some Lucky Racket gear? It's simple. Just go to their website, luckyracket.com, that's L-U-C-K-Y-R-A-C-K-E-T.com, and use our promo code CRACK15. If you do, you'll get 15% off all of your purchases. That means 15% off the shirts, 15% off all of the incredible swag offered by our friends. Again, that's luckyracket.com. The promo code is CRACK15. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, August 24th. We are back on the grind, folks. No more excuses, no more false promises. We are going every day on this podcast from here through at least the end of the 2021 U.S. Open because, of course, that's the year's final Grand Slam, and it's crazy to think that we've reached that part of the calendar, but folks, all eyes turning to New York in less than seven days. The action at the 2021 U.S. Open about to get started, of course. We will be previewing that tournament extensively on our Great Shot podcast feed. I already had my first conversation talking dark horses in the men's singles competition with Tennis Channel editorial producer David Kane. We've got a bunch of fun other guests lined up this week as well. You'll hear from familiar favorites such as Jeff Sackman, hopefully Mark Lucero as well. We're going to get Chris Otto on the show for the first time. A little Gil Gross action, some other flyers out there as well. We're going to be covering that tournament from all angles. Dark horses, top contenders, how the Americans are looking heading into the event. I think we have 14 Americans right now in the top 100 of the ATP men's singles rankings. I think we've got 15 or or 16 women in the top 100 of the WTA singles rankings. You throw in the wild cards that have been handed out to Americans as well. Should be a really, really fun 2021 U.S. Open for American tennis fans. So I want to explore all of those aspects in the build-up to that event. But of course, we are going to be focusing on all of that 
on the Great Shot podcast feed. Here on this mini break feed, of course, we've got a lot of tennis to catch up on. Last week, we had the Western and Southern Open 1,000-level event that saw Alex Virov and Ashley Barty put forward dominant performances on their way to the titles. That's going to be the focus of this episode. Of course, I am well aware. We've got Winston-Salem this week. We've got Chicago and Cleveland on the women's side as well. I'm going to preview all of those events on a separate mini break podcast to be released later today, so be on the lookout for that. But of course, again, if there's an 1,000 level events. Certainly, we got to talk about it to catch up here on the mini break podcast. I'll talk about the performance from the champions, the finalists, how they did as well, my other observations from the week of play. Now that I've finally had the time to catch up on all of the matches, and for those of you out there wondering what was the cause of the delay between last week's last mini break podcast, this episode A, Yes, there was a lot of traveling for us here at Crack Rackets. We are back in Indianapolis after a week uh, on the road at the, uh, of course, Lotto Elite Pro Tennis Challenge in Pennsylvania. I was also in Kalamazoo at the City Open as well, so it's been nice for me to spend a couple of days back home. But as such, I apologize. I got a little bit lazy Back on the grind, though. No more excuses because, of course, so much fantastic tennis for us to cover here. Down what is really the home stretch of this 2021 season. Of course, before I get into today's podcast, I do want to, of course, mention that the reason we're able to do this day in, day out here on this show is because of the support we get from all of you listeners, from our Crack Rackets Patreon family, and of course, from our friends over at Tennis Point. It was such a treat to get to do a live show on the grounds of the 2021 Western and Southern Open. If you missed it, it will be released as a podcast later on this week. We had the chance to chat with uh, Big Wig, I think he's head of pro tennis relations, head of one other category I've forgotten now, but Eric Buderak, who, Big Wig, at the USTA joined us for a nice 15-minute chat. We talked with Nate, of course, as well, at Tennis Point about the latest and greatest products. You guys are all going to enjoy those conversations, so be on the lookout for that podcast to drop later this week. And, of course, if you need to update any of your equipment, you can find all of the best gear at all of the best prices with our friends at Tennis Point. You go to their website site tennis-point.com right now you use our promo code cr15 you're gonna get 15 percent off your order free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding 75 dollars best of all a free can of wilson extra duty tennis balls again it's tennis-point the symbol not the spelling tennis-point.com that promo code is cr15 i realize now i forgot to mention we've got some really fun cracked interviews coming down the pipeline as well if you missed any of our chats with golbus eubanks roy smith and more at the lotto elite pro tennis challenge if you missed our conversations from kalamazoo we talked with michael woodson of baylor howie endelman of columbia steve Den of A&M and more. You can find all of those conversations on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed, all of that content on our website, crackrackets.com. With all of that said, let's talk about the 2021 Western and Southern Open. Boy, that was dominant. Dominant performances from our two champions. Let's start with Ashley Barty. I don't know how else to say it at this point. I'm not going to attack the hypothetical straw man that so many on tennis Twitter seem fine continuing to pick on because, quite frankly, I don't think there's anyone left out there who questions whether Ashley Barty should be the number one uh, women's singles player in the world or not right now. You look at the resume she's put together here in the 2021 season. 
Forty and seven overall. I didn't stutter. You heard me correctly. Forty and seven overall. That's an over eighty-five percent win percentage. Of course, you look for her at a more granular level. She is nineteen and six against top fifty opponents. Fourteen and one against top twenty opponents. Seven and one against top ten opponents. Her one loss, a three-set loss to Arena Sabalenka in the final of Madrid. You look for Ashley Barty now here on the season. She's made five, or excuse me, she's made six finals. She's won five titles in those six finals. Of course. You look over all those titles coming uh, in uh, one of the warm-ups to the Australian Open. She then wins Miami. She wins Stuttgart, the big title, obviously, her second Grand Slam at Wimbledon. She then wins this Western and Southern Open. So let's be clear. She's done it on hard courts. She's done it on clay courts. She's done it on grass courts. You look at her, again, 7-1 against top 10 opponents, that 40-7 record overall. So she's played a total, let's see, she's won five titles. So she's played 12 total events. She's won five titles, made six finals in those 12 titles, uh, in those 12 events, excuse me. She's making the final in half of the events she plays. And let's be clear, for Ashley Barty, with all due respect, she's not racking up wins. She did play Charleston, but it's not like it's the win in Charleston or a random, I'm not calling this tournament random, but, you know, a 250 win in Ostrava or she's playing that tournament that popped up in the South American clay court stretch. No, she's doing this in Rome in Stuttgart, in Cincinnati, in Miami, at Wimbledon, at the biggest events, we are getting the best of Ashley Barty, and she's put forward a dominant season. Again, you look at the losses she's taken even here on the year. You know, it was uh, obviously the three-set loss to Arena Sabalenka. Uh, I mentioned, you know, three-set loss to Mukova, quarterfinals of the Australian Open, a loss to Daniel Collins in Adelaide that is obviously appreciated in value given what we've seen from Danielle Collins this year. A couple of injury withdrawals from her as well. The only really straight-set, straightforward loss that you might scratch your head at a little bit her four and three loss to Paula Bedosa in Charleston but even then Bedosa has been a top 10 player this season and it's just like you have to play exceptional tennis or get Ashley Barty coming up the, the week after she had won the title in Miami to beat her that's how good she's been this season and of course I've mentioned this stat before you go back into the annals of tennis history Serena Williams uh, Martina Navratilova, Chrissy Everett, Monica Seles, who so frequently gets left out of those conversations, and of course Steffi Graf, they all ripped off, you know, three to five year stretches where they were doing what Ashley Barty was doing, perhaps even at a higher level. Instead of the 85% of the matches Ashley Barty has won, they were winning 90% of their matches. They were playing 18 tournaments, making 14 finals, winning, you know, 8 to 11 titles per season over a three year run. That's the best of the best in women's tennis history. You look for Ashley Barty. Could she enter that company here in a 2021 season? Should she run through, you know, a seven-win stretch at the U.S. Open and then, you know, win the year-end finals or win another tournament down the home stretch in the fall? You know, she finishes her season right now. She's 47-7. and seven. Let's see if she gets to that 50-7 mark or, you know, 51-7 or 56-8 and eight or whatever it may be. I don't know if that's quite on the level, but in terms of some of the other great number ones, Justine Ennin, by the way, ripped off a stretch like that. It was very much a three-year stretch, not a five-year stretch, but 
she's probably that tier that Ashley Barty can hang with if everything breaks right for her over these next couple of seasons. But let's be clear, that's the tier Barty belongs with because you compare this to the best seasons of a Venus Williams. I think this season from Barty, particularly if she can get another Grand Slam uh, title on her crown at the U.S. Open, it might be better than a new Venus season you're seeing. It might be better than any Sharapova season you're seeing, particularly given the longevity. Why can't Ashley Barty sustain this over the next three to five seasons? And, you know, the reason she didn't sustain it in 2020 is because she didn't play. We saw this version of Ashley Barty begin to break out in the 2019 season as a 23-year-old. She's now 25, clearly in her physical prime. And again, the way she was able to break down Jill Teichman, who had so much success over the course of the week, playing you know heavy heavy lefty serve. She can hit the slice out wide on the edge. She can hit it into your body on the deuce, but hit the flat out wide on the deuce as well. The heaviness of that Jill Teichman for first forehand on her willingness to attack floaters and follow it to the net on paper, lefty heavy spin aggressive game. It should give Ashley Barty's backhand all sorts of trouble. It didn't. In this match, and you look for Barty A, what was the tactical adjustment she made through the first four games? She was swinging through her backhand with two hands, driving that ball cross-court, saying to Teichman, you're not going to beat me this way. I'm not just going to be chipping to set up first forehands for you to just go after to an open court and her ability to put that slice backhand on a dime as well particularly her block backhand return her ability to get that ball into the Teichman backhand just not allow Jill to have easy looks at first forehands it was a special returning performance from Barty in the final. And then, of course, you look for her on serve. Yes, she struggled on serve this week. She only made 49% of her first serves, excuse me, against Teichman. And yet, you look at her averages for the week, she won 84%, 87%, 84%, 75%, and 86% of her first serve points in her uh, five matches on the week. So she's winning over 80% of her first serve points on the week, and that's because her first forehand is as good of a weapon as you're going to find on the WTA Tour. The consistency of the depth and the speed and the action she puts on her forehand approach shot, it's a special, special talent. And obviously, she's as comfortable of a volleyer as you're going to find in the women's game to the open court, the short volley, attacking the open space, forehand, backhand, wing. She can hit every volley in the book. She's comfortable playing the transition game as well, moving forward, hitting the swinging volley, her ability to take that forehand on the rise down the line, short angle, cross court, inside out, winners. She can do everything with it. And then again, the backhand becomes more and more dynamic with each passing match, each passing week. She's someone who has clearly continued to get better, and the numbers reflect that. You look for her now, five consecutive seasons, her first serve win percentage has improved for Ashley Barty. You go back five years ago, it was at 70%. It's now at 74.6. You look for her as a returner, averaging a career-high 39.7 break percentage this season. The backhand no longer breaks down with heavy pace. She didn't, you know, the difference for Teichman in the Pliskova match is a Pliskova backhand slice floats. Uh, uh, A Barty backhand slice does not. And her ability to keep that ball low and just out of the strike zone of Jill Teichman was finally, she was the first player who was able to break Teichman's rhythm all week long. And look for Barty, 
the Angelique Kerber match, Kerber just didn't have a big enough weapon to hurt Barty with. And again, lefty into the backhand. You figure Kerber's ability to take that ball on the rise, hit behind Ashley Barty. Certainly she had some success doing that throughout the course of the second set, but just you have to play with su- – there's such a small margin of error when you're playing Ashley Barty because not only does she not beat herself, but if you give her a short ball, she attacks, uh, attacks it near, nearly flawlessly. And so, again, Kerber just didn't have the big enough weapons. Ditto for Krejcikova in that quarterfinal match. Krejcikova was with Barty shot for shot in the second set, but ultimately Barty just had a little bit more firepower and could match Krejcikova's consistency. And just, again, her performance against Vika – she just rocked Vika. I mean, she was hitting the ball like it was, again, a basketball. Just hitting that ball so cleanly, swinging through the backhand. I don't know what else there is to do but praise the game of Ashley Barty again. Fifth title in six finals in 12 total events this season. She is your number one player in the world. And you look at the gap right now between her and everyone else. There is a 3,000-point gap between Ashley Barty and number two in the world, Arena Sabalenka. You just want to play that out. There is also a 3,000-point gap between number two in the world, Arena Sabalenka, and number... 13 in the world, Simona Halep. So that's the next closest equivalent there. I mean, yeah, Barty's number one. She, You look at the race to the year-end finals, she's a comfortable number one there as well. She's your number one player in the world. She's going to be for a while, and just given how the rankings were, she could set some records throughout her career because it's worth noting she is still only 25 years old. There is not a doubt in my mind Ashley Barty going to continue to have success as the world number one. Uh, she proved it again this week. And while I still think Naomi Osaka's ceiling on a hard court is higher, and by the way, if you look at the WTA ELO ratings right now, Barty number one overall, Barty number one in 2021 ELO. But in terms of hard court ELO, they still have, oh, interesting, for the first time, well, in terms of hard court raw ELO, Naomi Osaka's still slightly ahead of Ashley Barty, but in terms of current form hard court ELO, they actually have Barty over Naomi Osaka uh, for the first time in terms of that metric. So that's interesting to note that even the advanced metrics are starting to see Ashley Barty's upside as a hardcore player is perhaps even higher than Naomi Osaka's. I'm not quite there because I do think Naomi Osaka's power tennis in particular may be the one gear still able to overpower an Ashley Barty at this point, but Barty's your player to beat. She dominates again in Cincinnati, given she hadn't played since Tokyo. Nothing you can do but, you know, clap your racket and applause. Ashley Barty, your 2021 Western and Southern Open women's singles champ, and has the opportunity to certainly create some, and uh, yeah, I suppose match some history here down the home stretch of 2021. But of course, while she was the ultimate dominant winner uh, on the weekend, by the way, for Ashley Barty, worth noting, she did not drop a set in her five victories all week long. You know who else was dominant in her performances essentially all week? Jill Teichman who knocks out Kirstea, good victory considering Kirstea, one of the few players who's made third round or further at every major this year. She beats Bernardo Perez second round, then the three-set win over Osaka, a straight set wins over Benchich and Pliskova before getting knocked out by Barty. What was so noticeable is how dynamic 
the ball of Jill Teichman is. In particular, when you're playing two players like Bencic and Pliskova who thrive in the center third of the court. If you keep the ball in the center, I don't care how much topspin you put on the ball. I don't care how deep you're able to hit the ball. Belinda Bencic and Karolina Pliskova are two of the purest ball strikers you're going to find in women's tennis. And yet, the heaviness and the spin of Teichman's ground strokes and her ability to get those balls in the outer third and create angle and just, again, force the match to be played on a horizontal plane instead of on the vertical plane that Bencic and Pliskova want to play at, it was remarkable. And of course, for Jill Teichman, such a complete skill set, her ability to hit the slice out wide, the flat into your body. Of course, she's a lefty doing all of that as well. Her ability to hit the first forehand to the open court, her ability to follow those balls up to the net and just finish at the net as well. She was exceptional all week long, and you look for Jill Teichman now, who with this result back up to number 44 in the rankings after she had dropped out of the top 70. She's four off of her career high of number 40, which she hit earlier this season. You look for Teichman. She's made four WTA finals in her career, two on clay. Her last two have come on hard courts where she's lost to Jen Brady and Ashley Barty. No shame in those losses, but it's been a fascinating year for Teichman. 18 and 14 on the season. Now, she's won ter- matches in six of the 14 events she's played. Four of those six occasions, she's made the quarterfinals or further. And you look for her final in Cincinnati, semifinals in Dubai and Adelaide at the beginning of the year. She actually went quarterfinals, Phillips Island, semifinals, Adelaide, semifinals, Dubai in a three-tournament stretch where it felt like given she had made that final of Lexington and given she was one of the breakthrough stars in 2019 uh, before and start of 2020 when she was 22, 23 years old, you thought, okay, the breakthrough is here. She's going to sustain in the top 50. Well, you look for Teichman after that stretch, she ends up losing 10 of her next 13 matches. And, you know, it was on a bunch of clay court and grass court. It was on all three surfaces. And so, you know, again, that was surprising for Teichman. And a lot of it was injury issues. She struggled to find her health. And, you know, she felt the need to play matches through those injury struggles. And there were some a bunch of different three sets and five and six losses thrown in that mix as well. Tough losses, too, to players like Bedosa, Putin save uh, Elena Russa the week she ended up winning a title. But, I mean, there's no doubt. I, I think the highs for Teichman are very high. The lows can still be low. And you see what those highs can look like. By the way, the week before Montreal, three-set loss to her for her to Danielle Collins in the first round. It was just tough draws for her tournament after tournament after tournament. And that speaks to the depth right now in women's tennis. That Jill Teichman can run, run off a, uh, a run like this. Georgie the week before winning the title. And it's just like they aren't top 30 players still. And they aren't even considered top 30 players after their runs. Yeah, we know their ceilings can be that of top 30. But we don't see them with the consistency and, and even in that conversation. It speaks to the depth right now in women's tennis. Again, Jessica Pagula has been so good this year. And if you're really thinking hard, you may say, yeah, she's been probably top 15 this season, but she's what, like a top 25 player in the ecosystem, top 20? Like, it's really tough to place her. It's tough to place any of these players outside of maybe Ashley Barty and the best versions of Naomi Osaka right now because it really does feel like on any given week, uh, all of these players have the talent. Teichman amongst them, again, you're just not going to find a lefty who moves as well as she does, and she is quite a fluid athlete. I was going to say 5'8", 5'9", and just 
gets around the court so well. Again, such a heavy lefty forehand. Uh, she can create angle with it. She can go flat down the line with it. She's comfortable moving forward, finishing points at the net. She's got the complete skill, you know, skill set. And then what was so shocking was that the pace of Osaka, Bencic, and Pliskova didn't overwhelm her at all. And given how big that backswing is on her forehand, you figured it might. But what should surprise me so much is how comfortable Bencic and Pliskova, who both have great backhands, by the way, and enjoy feeding off of the topspin of Teichmann, but how comfortable they were playing to the Teichmann backhand, I, uh, forehand. I thought Barty did a much better job of finding that Teichmann backhand, really centering on it, of course. You know, again, keeping that ball low, throwing different looks, whether it was angles or slice at Jill Teichmann, just to not let her find her rhythm. Because when she found her rhythm against Osaka, Bencic, and Pliskva, it was dominant. And again, she dropped one set in her five victories on the week. It was that first set to Naomi Osaka, who played a good match. And shouldn't be hanging her head. Again, if Osaka finds her rhythm from a fitness standpoint this next week, finds her rhythm in that first week of U.S. Open matches, she enters round two, uh, week two, excuse me, if she makes it to the round of 16, with all due respect to Ashley Barty, she probably becomes my favorite at the U.S. Open at that point, and it's still probably my favorite entering the event, but I mean, man, Everyone who's everyone is going to say Jill Teichman's my dark horse because she's going to be ranked in the 40s and unseated entering this U.S. Open. And again, if you're a seed, you want no part of her in your first two rounds. Jill Teichman's best tennis continues to prove uh, she can hang with the best. Let's look at her records this year. Against top 50 players, she's 9-8. and 5-2, and two, though, against the top 20. 4-1 and one against the top 10. Against the best, Jill Teichman brings her best. Now, of course, two of those top 10 victories just came in this past week but you look at the top 10 uh top 20 victories again five and two overall though i suppose three of them just came in the past week jill teichman point being when she plays her best tennis it can be very very good she did so at the western southern open making the final back up again to number 44 in the rankings i'm curious though where she is in the race she's 29th in the race to the year-end finals that feels about right in that you know 30 to 50 range is probably where jill teichman belongs in the moment. In terms of the other observations from the Western Southern Open on the women's side, continued excellent form from Karolina Pliskova and, uh, excuse me, Angelique Kerber right now. You look for Pliskova. She's just starting to serve well again. I think that's the biggest thing. And for Karolina Pliskova, that's always been the biggest thing for her because her first serve can be dominant. And when she's playing from the center of the court, her ability to strike the ball, play aggressively, move forward, her feel, it's exceptional. It's not good. It's not great. It's exceptional. And she's finally confident. She's healthy. She's moving well. 29 years old, back up to number four in the world. Again, you look at the results for her since Wimbledon. Well, I mean, Wimbledon final, round of 16, she loses to Georgie, which is fine because you know, we eventually learn Georgie goes on to win Montreal and beat Pliskova again there. But at that event, Pliskova beats Sabalenka, beats Cerebes Tormo, two very different but very impressive wins. She then comes to Cincy, follows it up by beating Putinseva, gets the big win from a mental standpoint over Pagula, knocks out Bedosa as well, before bowing out to Jill Teichman. Again, to play nine matches or what was that, five plus four? Yeah, nine matches in 11 days. That's a ton of tennis on the body of Carolina Pliskova. And she held up well throughout all of it. I am feeling 
th- this is the problem is now you feel good about Pliskova heading into a major, and that's where she baits you into that early round loss, particularly given the depth in the WTA field right now. If Teichman plays, let's say, Pliskova again in a first or second round match, she can absolutely beat Karolina Pliskova. Uh, all of that said, Feel good about Pliskova's game. She belongs right now in the top five of the women's rankings, at least as a reflection of the past two months. She's been in that conversation. Semifinals for her. I don't have too much to add on Angelique Kerber. I just thought Kerber finally healthy, and you can tell from her movement and just, again, her ability to take that ball early on the rise. To, it requires her to be healthy, to be moving in a precise manner. Good tennis from her. Krejcikova is just damn good. She's a top 10 player consistency-wise. She plays near or at her, you know, one of the highest floors on a match-by-match basis right now on the WTA Tour. Kvitova having to bow due to injury against Kerber. Obviously, you never love to see that. I believe it was for a stomach bug that seemed to be going around. Yeah, that happens. Like, again, Kvitova, her best tennis, still extraordinary. Bedosa retires against Pliskova. Just played such physical tennis the week before. But feeling very good about Paula Bedosa. Right now, you look at the top 10, top 15, top 20 clubs in the women's game. You know, best in hold and break percentage. Sviantek and Muguruza. Top 10 in both hold and break percentage. Then you get a group of Sakari, Sabalenka, Jabour, and Danielle Collins, top 15, Krechikova, Serena, Bedosa, and now Ashley Barty, all in the top 20 club. Those are your 10 names. Like, that that group makes sense. Of course, Belinda Bencic was your other quarterfinalist. The confidence she gained in Tokyo, she's just striking the ball purely again from the center of the court. She has a ton of points to defend here down the home stretch, but she's playing at a level well enough that she might, you know, that she is capable of defending those points. But again, those 10 names, and by the way, Elisa Mertens would be your 11th name in the top 25 club, but... You know, Barty, uh, I mean, Sviantek, Muguruza, Sakari, Sabalenka, Jabour, Collins, Krechikova, Badosa, Barty, and I suppose Serena. Those are the names that have defined the WTA Tour in 2021, and there have been a lot of names. Certainly, you start to think of the youngsters as well, the Goths of the world, Clara Tossens of the world, who won Chicago. I'll talk about that at the end of this show, but yeah. Uh, I think those are your 10. And when the numbers match the eye test in tennis, that's when it ever means something. Interesting to note, uh, again, where we are at coming out of Cincinnati. Barty, the prohibitive favorite. Osaka in that conversation just out of the respect to her recent results on hard courts. After that, it's a wide open field. And I think that's what makes the WTA Tour such an enjoyable uh, tour to follow over these past, honestly, we can say three years. But again, Barty, your champion, Teichman, your finalist, fantastic action at the Western and Southern Open on the women's singles side. Let's flip gears now and talk about the men because... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, 
I will disclaim. I will say this as a disclaimer every time we bring him up on this podcast moving forward. Go read Ben's piece, Alia Sharapova's story uh, about Alex Virov and Mary Kareel, uh, about the abuse she sustained while in a relationship with Alex Virov, both physically and the mental abuse. But you know, and, and you know, Mary Kareel let slip that part two of that story will be coming out soon, and I can back that claim up as well. And you know, again, we won't get into the specifics and the dates and whatnot, but. That's unequivocally part of the Alex Zverev story moving forward, particularly until it's adequately addressed both by him and the ACP tours. There's not been a moment of contrition. There has not been by either side, and there's not been a single indication that the ATP tour has undergone an investigation, that they've looked into the matter themselves. And I know they will say, well, players are individual contractors, but they are competing under the guise and under the you know brand of the ATP tour. So the ATP tour should absolutely have a stake in in the Alex Virov story, that has to be said whenever you're covering Alex Virov. What also has to be said, he's found it. He's absolutely found it. This gear of his, as as just the aggression with which he has played from the baseline and just the confidence with which he's serving, this is the Alex Virov I've been talking about now for far too many years on this podcast, really since its inception in 2017. I've said it from the beginning. He's the guy for me of the next-gen crew. Every match he plays, there's 10 minutes where his combination of size, speed, fluidity, and skill, I've just never seen that package put together all at once the way he's able to on a tennis court. And, you know, for Zverev this week, when you know for him plays his first tennis since playing in Tokyo he gets wins straight set to start out the tournament over an inform Lloyd Harris beats Guido Pea comfortably really dominant win over Kasparud is up a set and a break on CT Pass before you know again whether it was a stomach bug whatever it may be frustration uh he goes down a set in 4-1 he's down 4-1 in the third to Stefano Tsitsipas, clearly physically ailing. He comes back to win that match, 7-6 in the third. Do you know how many times I've watched Alex Virov lose that match? A thousand times. A thousand times you see him dominate someone through a first set and a half and just look like the dominant player. And then the pressure gets amped up. He's in a winning position. He gets passive. He falls behind the baseline. He loses his lead. He loses the match. That didn't happen against Tsitsipas. He dominates Rublev again, and all of this comes back to the serve for Alex Virov. And you look at the numbers for him this season, he's winning 77% of his first serve points. That matches his 79%—excuse percent uh, excuse me, he's winning—excuse uh, me, 77% yeah, percent of his first serve points. That matches his career high that he put up from last year. He's also winning 50.4% of his second serve points. Career high now, 84% whole percentage— He's serving the best in his career, and when he serves as well as he does, and it was easy 130 pace down the tee, out wide, the thing is a freaking explosion coming off of his racket, he then can play aggressive with his plus one ball. His ability to hit that backhand down the line has never been questioned. Even the biggest doubter of Alex Virov's game, and again, not his personality, he's an there's no denying that, and I think if you've covered him, you can just tell, again, when you've been told your whole life you are the greatest thing since sliced bread, and he has been told that his whole life because he has been the guy his whole life, like, yeah, you're going to reflect that in your personality. You're also going to reflect that in your tennis, and he's had that air about him his entire career where he thinks he is the next guy. And he's, I think he's figured it out from a tennis standpoint, from a sudden breakdown against Djokovic in those Olympic semifinals to that entire through line of the dominant final against Andre Rublev. He's just hit another gear. 
the aggression he's playing with from the baseline, inside the baseline, taking that forehand early, moving that ball cross-court, down the line, not struggling with depth on his forehand anymore either, getting able to get a little more drive in that ball. Of course, again, I think what's always made him so special is he's the first guy I can say without, I think, getting laughed out of the room. He may be on the Djokovic plane in terms of his backhand when he's clicking, his ability to hit that ball down the line when he's on the run as a passing shot. Only Novak Djokovic I've ever seen hit the shots that Alex Zverev can hit off of that wing, and I don't say that lightly. And then you throw in the fact that he's got a 130-mile-per-hour serve, that the weight of his forehand when he's getting his body behind it, his momentum behind it, it can overwhelm you, and he can hit it inside out, inside in. And then he's six foot six, and he's fluid, and he's got a quick first step. And, like, I know for some reason he doesn't get in the conversation with Medvedev's of the world as a mover at that size, but I think he's every bit the mover that Daniil Medvedev is on a hard court. And I just think... Again, as a volleyer, he's gotten so much better than since he was younger. He almost knows what he's doing up there now, and I actually think his overhead has always been better than his serve, and he hits that shot comfortably. I mean, I could rant and rave about Alex, the positives of Alex Virev's game, but the key has always been in the biggest moments he's gotten tentative, and we haven't seen that gear from him since being down a set in the break at the Olympics where he just started swinging freely from the baseline, and of course it's worth noting. It's another two out of three set result for him. But it's also worth noting he's the only guy this season with two Masters 1000s titles. He's now the big four, him and Isner with the most Masters 1000s finals appearances uh, on the uh, currently active on the ATP Tour. There's that stat. He's, you know, it's another title for him. He moves up in the rankings now, I believe, with this title to number back up to number four in the rankings. It goes Djokovic, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Zverev, Nadal right now. That's where we're at, folks. By the way, you look in the race to the year-end finals, same deal. Djokovic, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev. You look for Zverev, fourth rounder better at his last seven majors as well. I, I talked about this with David Kane. I'm going to talk about it again on the GSPs we do previewing the 2021 U.S. Open. At a certain point, there's only one checkbox left for him to check off, and that's winning a Grand Slam title because Alex Zverev has done absolutely everything else. And we've seen in a two out of three set format, his best tennis, I don't care if it's Novak Djokovic, particularly this version of Novak Djokovic, I don't care if it's Rafa, I don't care if it's Federer, I don't care if it's Medvedev, Tsitsipas, any of them, Zero's best is as good, if not better, on his best day than any other player on the ATP Tour right now. And I don't say that lightly, but I think with the evidence we've seen, whether it's in Tokyo here or the Western Southern Open now as well, you'll take me a little bit more seriously when I say that fact. Because, again, for him, it's always been mental. And it's a three out of five set thing as well. But do any of us have questions physically that he can withstand the three out of five set test anymore? I don't. It's a mental thing for him. Can he continue to be aggressive in that fifth set? Because his legs will be there if this tournament is any indication, if the Olympics are any indication— the answer is yes, and I think if you're Novak Djokovic, you are begging that Alex Zverev is on the other side of the draw from you, because a Djokovic versus Zverev final, totally different match, totally different connotation. Yes, Djokovic will have all of the pressures of winning in that 21st and calendar Grand Slam in that final, but Zverev will have all of the pressures of winning his first Grand Slam title, of being the guy to usurp Djokovic on that stage particularly, you know, given after Zverev was two points away from winning the U.S. Open last year, and that would inevitably creep into his head. 
But in the semifinals, when Djokovic is pursuing all of that and Zverev is playing that match with nothing to lose, he was up breaks in three of the four sets in their Australian Open match this year that he lost in four. I think it could happen. He's the guy to me. And I know you may think, is this a hot take just because of the last two events? No. If you've listened to this podcast, if you're listening at the 36-minute mark, you know from a tennis perspective, I've always felt this way about Zverev's game. I think the rest of the world seeing it now too because his best is that good. He can just hit the ball that big, that dynamic from the baseline. You're not supposed to be able to do that all that fluidly at his size, and he can. And it's it's a wonder. Again, he hit his own in this event. He ends up taking the title, another Masters title for him. He's the leader in the clubhouse, title, total titles, Masters 1,000 titles of all of the next-gen crew. He's on pace. Again, he's the guy. Right now, if the bet is, is Alex Zverev going to end up in the Hall of Fame, yes or no? If it's purely from a tennis perspective, the answer is yes, because in terms of the benchmarks, he's clearing them all, and it just feels like that Grand Slam title is the last thing we're waiting to see from him. But of course, that's enough on Zverev. Let's switch gears now and talk about Andre Rublev. Have we ever seen a player who we're more sure is going to be the best version of themselves at some point on tour uh, during their career than Andre Rublev? The intensity he plays with the passion he plays with, the fire he plays with. Can it be self-destructive? Absolutely. At times it can, and I think the frustration uh, with Medvedev and the ups and the downs of that match, it just wore him out heading into that final against Zverev. But, I mean, the patience he showed in that Medvedev match, and we're not going to talk about Cameragate here because it's all been litigated, and to be honest, I don't really care. Like, I know I should care. I know I should. I know camera play... the de- it's it's indicative as Matt Zemeck always says it's indicative of the larger trends that there needs to be a players union and that there just aren't people thinking through these things why are the dimensions of the court in Cincy different than the dimensions of the court in Toronto why isn't there just a uniform station place the camera always is so that players are always aware of those circumstances yes all of those things ring true at the same time just don't be 30 feet behind the baseline like and don't don't kick over a camera. That's never a good look. And you know what's never good? Kicking things over. No one has ever been like, oh, I kicked that over. And everyone's like, yeah, he kicked it over. Like, that's that's never – except maybe the Berlin Wall, but that wasn't kicking. You know, you're not kicking that wall over. You're bringing that bad boy down. Um, anyways, all of that is to say – I don't care. I, I don't care about Cameragate. I care about the tennis we saw unfolding. And what Andre Rublev was able to do was outlast the machine. And much like I said for Karolina Pliskova, it was the machine's ninth match in 11 days. Of course, I'm referring to Daniil Medvedev. And anyone who tries to extrapolate some sort of – I already tweeted this – some sort of negative thing from Daniil Medvedev's loss against Andre Rublev of, oh, here's why Daniil Medvedev is in trouble heading into the U.S. Open, congratulations. I now take you less seriously. But for Andre Rublev, you can absolutely you, know, you can absolutely take positives, and the big positive was he didn't break down. He didn't just try to hit his way through everything. He was patient. He forced Medvedev to make tactical adjustments. He just stopped giving Medvedev anything easy. No more unforced errors. He started taking his backhand down the line a little bit more. He started coming to the net a little bit more, just throwing different looks at Medvedev, even incorporating some backhand slice. Because the same patterns they were in, Rublev trying to go Mach 17 on forehands with Medvedev somehow tracking them all down and then just ripping the passing shot by Rublev in the end, that wasn't working. Things like the chill, I mean, it helped that Rublev's first serve percentage jumped massively in sets two and three, but just 
it was more dynamic than just a first forehand from Rublev. He started, you know, crafting points, waiting for and stopped, stopped forcing it on the third forehand he got of the rally and waited until that sixth, seventh, eighth forehand to really open up a crack in the court and attack Daniil Medvedev through that crack. It was it was a it was a performance. It's funny because I, the the I don't want to say narratives because narratives are always arbitrary and there's no real narrative surrounding Andre Rublev this season but 41 and 14 in 2021 it doesn't feel that way anymore right it doesn't feel like he's won 75% of his matches of late and yet you know you look at the actual results yeah it was a disappointing clay court season particularly but you look elsewhere so he starts out wins ATP Cup with Medvedev doesn't lose in that event quarterfinals he loses to Medvedev in Australia wins Rotterdam semifinals Doha loses to RBA semifinals Dubai loses to Karatsev semifinals Miami loses to Hercats finals of Monte Carlo loses to Tsitsipas through April he was one of the best five players in tennis I think unequivocally no one would have denied that and you look at the advanced metrics he's still one of only five players to be top 15 in both hold and break percentage for the season but you look since that April Monte Carlo result I mean the losses, quarterfinals to Sinner in Barcelona, round of 16, 7, 6 in the third to Isner. That's fine. By the way, the loss to Sinner, 2 and 6. You know, he loses three sets to Sinego, Rome quarterfinals, five sets to Struff, first round Roland Garros, you know, five sets to Fucevic, fourth round Wimbledon. The Isner loss, 5 and 6 at Canada. Like, you lose to Isner 5 and 6 on a hard court. That happens sometimes. When John serves well, he makes the semis of that event. Riley made the final. It was clearly conducive to big serving. Yes, it wasn't the best run for him post Monte Carlo to the start of Cincy. But honestly, there haven't been any red flags for Andre Rublev. If anything, it's just like, okay, we know his best is top 10, but does he have a, a dynamic enough game to be a top 5 guy? To When when plan A is not working against a Medvedev or a Zverev or a Tsitsipas, what does he do from there? And against Medvedev, he finally flashed a plan B. And it's not the most concrete plan B because, again, 3 out of 5 sets or a Daniil Medvedev that hadn't played 9 matches in 11 days – might be a different story, but this was this was a step forward for Andre Rublev from a confidence standpoint, perhaps more than anything else. And look, I expect him to hold seed. I expect him the expectations quarterfinals of the U.S. Open. Now it depends who your seed is from there, but anything less than the quarterfinals is a disappointment for Andre Rublev because hard court should be his best surface. He did it in Australia. He can do it again here. The Cincy result very much indicative of that fact. Big confidence boost for Rublev. He played good tennis all week long. Again, it was some tricky tennis, too. Three-set wins over Chilich, Pear, and Medvedev. Six-and-six win over Monfils. Rode that edge. Didn't play his best throughout the week, but competed his best. And honestly, to be a top-ten player, that's going to happen. When you're not playing your best tennis, yet you find ways to win. This was a great sign from Andre Rublev, who usually has to play his best tennis to win. Didn't need it this week. Found it in pockets when he did need it. Big final for him in Cincy. Uh, still looking for that Masters 1000 title, but is there any doubt that he's going to get it at some point uh, for Rublev? Again, enters the uh, enters the U.S. Open tied for his career high ranking, number seven, and with a bunch of confidence heading into New York. Uh, again, those are your two finalists. The other observations, I already said it for Daniil Medvedev. Guy is going to make at least the quarterfinals. The expectations for him, let's be honest, are finals of the U.S. Open. And if you lose to Djokovic or you lose to Zverev or you lose to Tsitsipas, or you, I mean, you lose to Djokovic, fine. 
the other guys he thinks he can beat and he should think that he can beat them because it again if J- Djokovic is the guy and then it, that's tier one tier two is Zverev and Medvedev and they're on their own tier right now entering this U.S. Open because with all due respect to Stefano Tsitsipas he's a half tier below th- I mean it's unfair to say he's a tier below that. I know it's hardcore. It's a little bit quicker. The backhand can be a little bit more exposed as a return. Uh, the backhand return, excuse me, can be a little bit more exposed. But, I mean, that the weight Tsitsipas puts behind his forehand and the way he competes and the heaviness of that serve, his huevos willingness to move forward. And honestly, I think the backhand's gotten more dynamic in his ability to hit through that wing in uncomfortable positions. Just the pressure he puts on you with the heaviness of his shot I mean, he loses a three-set match to Zverev. I think it had more to do with Zverev than it did with Steph. And I know some people say, oh, it's another. Steph was up two sets to love on Djokovic at the French Open. He blew that. Did anyone really think Stefanos was going to win that match at Roland Garros? Or didn't we all just think we were waiting for Djokovic to hit the gear he had hit against Nadal? And then he hit it, and it was like, okay, yep, good for Steph to steal those first two sets. But then Djokovic did his Djokovic things. You know what? Steph... You're on Tier 2. You're a segment below Medvedev and Zverev in Tier 2, but you belong in Tier 2. Those three guys have absolutely separated themselves from the Berrettini-Rublev class that's right beneath them. But Steph is closer to Medvedev and Zverev than he is to Rublev and Berrettini. And again, I know he blows that lead, but he's playing outstanding tennis. I think physically he gets better and better with these. Like, we underrate his develop. We don't, we don't, you know, we don't talk enough about hashtag great shot, hashtag Gil Gross. You know, people don't talk enough about the continued physic improvements physically of Stefano Tsitsipas. He's always been a big guy, but as a mover, I never expect him to end up this fluid horizontally to be able to play defensive tennis the way that he does, hit out of his corners and still get weight behind his forehand and backhand in those corners, and yet he can. And so again, those are my three. Like Those three, and I'll say it's still, Sinner and FAA. If we leave the 2020s and those five guys don't each have at least one slam to their name, I will be shocked because Tsitsipas is playing that well. Semi-finals for him in Cincy. No shame in that result. In terms of your other quarterfinalists, just pencil Crane Obusta into holding seed right now. He's the last of the lost gen. He's playing some really good tennis, uh, but obviously just Medvedev worked him. I mean, there's nothing he could do to beat Medvedev. And, you know, is the best of the lost gen good enough to win a slam? I don't think so. But still, I mean, Karina Boost is a top 10 guy, and he belongs in that conversation. He's very much in contention for the year-end finals. You look for Karina Boost right now. Uh, he is currently in 12th place if you remove Rafael Nadal, which we can because he is out for the season very much. He's in 12th place. He currently tra- trails Hubi Hercats by fewer than 800 points, so definitely has the opportunity with a good run in New York. Good run in Paris, good run elsewhere to make a move towards those year-end finals. In terms of, again, for Casper Ruud to go quarterfinal, quarterfinal on these hardcourt majors, anyone who's still doubting his ability on a hardcourt, like, is he going to be as good of a player on a hardcourt as he is on a clay court? No, he's not. That forehand, the dy- how dynamic it is, the, his backhand and the variety he plays with on his backhand, and as a mover, comparatively, him on clay to others— He'll be a better player on clay than he is on hard courts. Is he good enough on hard courts to where how good he is on clay will make him a top 10 player for multiple years in his career? 
yes, he is that good on a hard court that if he can sustain this success on clay, he can absolutely be a top 10 player. Because when you're this good on two out of the three surfaces, that's what it takes to be a top 10 player. And again, if anything, his sample size right now, his record on hard courts and ATP level matches, a reflection of a lack of sample size, I should say, more than anything else. I thought, yes, Zverev worked him, but that again had more to do with Zverev than anything else. And then shout out to you, Benoit making a quarterfinal here much needed for your career much needed to stay inside the top 100 and you look for pair now with this result back up to number 49 in the rankings always big when you can bank masters quarterfinals points then for felix ogier aliasim I thought it was a big win for him over Berrettini in the round of 16 for FAA to get that win 4-3. and three. Just, again, the big serve, the big forehand. Berrettini coming back from injury wasn't ready for that sort of pace. And that speaks to, again, FAA's gear one. It can overwhelm even someone like a Matteo Berrettini. So uh, you guys know my thoughts on FAA. I don't need to expand on them any further. Needless to say, uh, again, it was a really, really fun event on the men's side in at the Western and Southern Open. What this shows more than anything, and you know, it's the I think people are calling them the small four now. I don't love that, but I get the the feeling behind that. That Zverev, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Rublev quartet. I think Berrettini belongs in the conversation just as much as Rublev. That's why I don't like that. I think it's the the key three, and maybe everyone else. That's what we're going to call it here at the Great Shot Podcast. At me at Great Shot Pod, if you would de- agree or disagree. Should we call it the key? three or do we call it the small four because i don't think it's a small four i think what it's not a fantastic five either it's not a what's an average word what's a synonym for average that starts with f that i'm trying to get with five or the the uh the the seguin song uh that's horrible at matt zamek for that one um I'll think of something. I'll think of something. But for now, we're going to call them the key three. Uh, and then you've got the rest of the group as well. Now, Ken Sinner joins. He's just a little young. So he'll. I, it's not. they're the key three. Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev. Uh, but that's interesting. Again, or, or the key three or the core four. Ooh. So we've got the key three. We've got the core four. Uh, the, the frivolous five. <laughs> they're not. Fr- Anyways, all of that is to say. Fun event at the 2021. Leave all of that in, West. A fun event at the 2021 Western and Southern Open. Quickly, before we wrap today's show, how about Clara Tawson? She emerges as the winner of what was a very fun 125 in Chicago. You just look at the sem- uh, quarterfinal, semifinal round there. We had Raducanu, one of the young stars of Wimbledon, taking on one of the breakthrough stars back in the top 100 now, or I should say maybe top 100 for the first time in her career, is American Claire Liu. Uh, with Lou's result, uh, again, making the semifinals here. Uh, she gets knocked out by Red Kanu in the semifinals, uh, 7-6-4-6-6-1. And then Clara Tawson, really impressive 7-6-6-1 win over the quietest rising star in American women's tennis, Ann Lee. And by the way, we look for Ann Lee now up to number 67 in the WTA rankings. That's one off her career high of 66, which she reached last year. She's 15-8 and eight overall in singles matches, 21 years old, sneaky explosive from the baseline and again for her I, I just feel like because it's not as flashy as the semifinal Nisimova made the grand slam won by Sonia Cannon or all that is Coco Goff we don't talk about the raging success that has been Anne Lee to get into the top 75 comfortably and just the continued success winning two-thirds of your matches at the WTA level at age 21 
She's going to be around for a long time, folks. This is going to be a very fun decade for American women's tennis. So many different bites at the apple uh, in terms of just players, top 10, top 20, top 50. So Ann Lee belongs on that list, as does Claire Liu, to be honest. She's been a part of the ecosystem perhaps a bit longer. But Claire Liu's still only 21 years old herself, up to number 100 again in the WTA rankings. New career high for her, 37-14 and 14 overall this season. Also happens to just be one of the kindest people you're going to meet out there, but explosive from the baseline, super good competitor as well. Uh, again, uh, that was a fun final, but if you haven't seen Clara Tawson hit a backhand down the line yet, might be one of my five favorite shots in women's tennis right now. And Clara Tawson has top five potential, not like top 10, top 20, top five potential. That's how overwhelming the power is. Her forehand, how that Western grip, but how dynamic that forehand can be. Again, her ability as a returner. I don't know if she has... If, again, it depends on her movement. But I thought that way about Tsitsipas when he was young as well. And look at... I just did a rant earlier about how he's developed so well as a mover. I've learned to doubt movement less than anything else because movement is the one thing a player controls to an extent as much as anything else. You can't control the firepower. You're, you're able to produce the natural pop. And Clara Tawson has that in spades. Really fun event in Chicago that, of course, has a follow-up this week. But, again, indicative of the generational shifts. Lou versus Raducanu, uh Lee versus Tawson. All those players are 21 years old or younger. That's, that field screams crack rackets. Had to bring it up here. Of course, I'll preview the Chicago field this week, the Cleveland field, the Winston-Salem on the men's side field in part two of the mini break podcast, which you will all hear later today. But that is our recap of last week's action. Hopefully you all feel a little bit more up to date now as we approach this 2021 U.S. Open. Of course, look out for preview podcasts on the open all week long on the Great Shot podcast feed. Already had David Kane to talk men's singles dark horses. We're going to have Mark Lucero, Jeff Sackman, Chris Otto, and more to talk about this tournament from each and every angle to ensure you listeners have all the information you need to enjoy the year's final Grand Slam. Of course, if you want to hear from some of the players competing in that event, got to speak with Ernest Golbis, Chris Eubanks uh, at the 2021 Lotto Elite Pro Tennis Challenge. They'll both be participating in qualifying this week, uh, so you can find uh, learn more about that, of course. Uh, you can find all those podcasts, excuse me, on the Cracked Interviews podcast. You can read more about U.S. Open qualifying on our website as Damian Koost wrote an article that all of you can go check out, CrackedRackets.com. Of course, like, rate, subscribe, review to this podcast, the Mini Break, uh, is the Mini Break podcast, the Great Shot podcast, Cracked Interviews podcast, and all of our shows. You need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at Great Shot Pod. A shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fleener and Daniel Westoff for the f- of an editing job they do day in day out shout out as well to our friends over at midway uh at tennis point excuse me first time i've done that in a while go to tennis-point.com and use that promo code cr15 with all that said for super producers Fleener and Westa, for our friends at tennis point and from all of us here at both cracked rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin you know what we say that's the break and we will see you all later today thanks everyone Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 